0: Hello again, and welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear, with an emphasis on empowering you, me, and we the people into an activist response to get those nuclear reactors shut down. My name is Libby Halevi, and the reason that I do this podcast every week is that I was one mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened which still has amazing resonance in my life and in the lives of so many others. And this program, this podcast, is my citizen activist response in the wake of Fukushima on all things nuclear. I wanted to lend my voice to the growing anti-nuclear movement worldwide and do what I can. Uh, if you are on this call, uh, we had some background noise last week, so I just asked if you could hit star six to mute yourself. Uh, that would be great because uh, we'll keep the background noise to a minimum that way. Later in the show, I will be interviewing Sean Bonner of SafeCast on his recent trip to Japan and Fukushima to distribute radiation monitors. It's a fascinating story I learned from a blog post, and we'll talk about it more in a little bit. Today is Tuesday, August 30th, 2011, day 127 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th, and here is the latest nuclear news. Uh, a lot of it took place in the United States. The earthquake last Tuesday in Virginia may have produced stronger shaking at the North Anna nuclear plant than the reactors there were designed to withstand, according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which has sent additional inspectors to determine what steps are needed to determine if there has been damage. The NRC announced on Monday, that's just yesterday, that it was sending an, quote, augmented inspection team, end quote, which is expected to be on site for several weeks. Before, the reactors at North Anna shut down automatically because of the earthquake, which was centered about varying reports, 10 miles away, 3 miles away, 4 miles away. Let's put it this way, really close. Uh, before the quake disrupted access to off-site power supplies uh, was when both reactors shut down automatically. Both are now in cold shutdown, which means that their fuel is no longer producing much heat and the cooling water temperature is below 212 degrees. The plant owner, Dominion, reported to the NRC on Friday that the plant was in unanalyzed condition because preliminary laboratory analysis of a mechanical sensor called a scratch pad showed that the ground motion, quote, potentially exceeded, end quote, the level for which the plant was designed. A Dominion spokesperson said an initial walk down had found some thermal insulation shaken off pipes carrying steam or hot water and damage to some electrical conductors on top of the transformer. In addition, an office building at the site, which was built to commercial, not nuclear standards, has cracks in the foundation. This is talking about the material that is available above ground and visible. But there is concern, uh, according to Paul Gunter of Beyond Nuclear, we are most concerned about buried pipe that carries radioactive water underneath the plant that could very well have ruptured, broken, and be leaking into groundwater. This plant was four miles away from the epicenter 4310, really close. So I would say that without question there would be damage to pipes, concrete retaining walls, things like that. At the time of that quake, there were a total of 12 incidents at nuclear sites uh as far away as Michigan that were labeled unusual events, which is the lowest level, the first level I shouldn't say lowest. Any unusual event around a nuclear reactor is not a good thing. But it's the first level of reporting at the NRC. So that was a very powerful quake and um, really set us up for further awareness about the fact that there are nuclear plants that are uh that are volatile and um they are at risk in any kind of natural disaster speaking of which we of course had hurricane irene last week which very fortunately was a uh, level, a, a category 1 Hurricane by the time it hit ground and then got downgraded to a tropical storm. So we weren't hit with the worst of the winds. But there was a ton of rain that happened. And in the wake of Irene, uh, there was a transformer explosion that happened just yesterday uh, in a turbine building at the uh, Calvert Cliffs nuclear plant in southern Maryland. Uh, According to a spokesperson for the operating uh, firm, the Constellation Energy Nuclear Group, uh, he said an unusual event had been declared, I hate that term, um, that heavy wind gusts associated with Hurricane Irene blew a large piece of aluminum siding from a building nearby, which then struck the facility's main transformer. And as I said, the day after that happened, there were reports of an explosion on the property uh, of a turbine building, not the nuke plant itself, but a turbine building so and and today, just today, there was a report of an unusual event at our old friend Fort Calhoun, on the banks of the Missouri River. Uh, it was later rescinded. It turns out that the water level there is now at one thousand three point five six feet above sea level, which means that for the first time since uh, late May, early June, it is below flood level. No word of the berm is still in place. However, what all this points to is the fact that the most usual thing out there is an unusual event being reported to the NRC about what's happening at nuclear plants around the country. Now, in the wake of this, um, actually it was after the earthquake, but before the the rain, before the uh, hurricane, Physicians for Social Responsibility called for immediate action to improve safeguards at nuclear reactors vulnerable to seismic events such as the 5.8-magnitude earthquake that happened last week. Uh, Quote, The events highlight how absolutely essential backup safety systems are for nuclear reactors. In this instance, Only three of four backup generators, he's referring to the North Anna plant, only three of the four backup generators functioned as they should. We were lucky, and that's Peter D. Wilk, who's a doctor and the executive director of Physicians for Social Responsibility. We call on the NRC to uphold their duties and begin reviewing and implementing the Fukushima Task Force recommendations promptly. Anything less can only be perceived as willful blindness. Now, the, in July, the NRC issued a report from its Fukushima task force with preliminary recommendations to improve safety and backup systems in the U.S. reactors. Uh, that's what Dr. Wilk was referring to. Another doctor, Andrew S. Cantor, who's uh, president-elect of Physicians for Social Responsibility, said, quote, yesterday's quake was a wake-up call the NRC should begin implementing the recommendations of the Fukushima Task Force immediately and uphold their vital responsibilities to protect public health and safety. How many more near-misses will be enough to convince the NRC that urgent action is required? Uh, that's a really good question because it seems that cumulatively this summer we have been faced with fires, floods, earthquakes, all kinds of threats to nuclear plants, and we've just barely escaped each time. There's no saying that our luck is going to hold on this, and luck is not a word that should be used anywhere in proximity with the conjoined words nuclear reactor. Uh, next week I'm very happy that we will be talking to Dr. Robert Gould, of physician's for social responsibility, on uh, exactly what radiation does to the body and why we should be very wary um, about nuclear reactors and get them shut down. Now, I have a lot of information about Japan. At this point, I would like to know if uh, Sean Bonner is on the line. Sean, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, Sean, how wonderful to have you here. Well, let me get your information out because I've got so many pieces of paper here, I can't (laughs) – here's the right one. I'm so delighted to have you on the call, Sean. Sean Bonner is one of the creators of SafeCast, a citizen activist group that has distributed free radiation monitors to people on the ground in Japan, including directly into Fukushima Prefecture. Um, I first became aware of Sean and the work he was doing uh, because somebody forwarded me a link to a blog post he put up on August 7th entitled, How I Spent My Sunday in Fukushima. It has to be one of the most compelling titles I've run across in a long time. And I was so taken with the precision and the clarity and the... The lack of emotion, but still the emotional charge that I received from reading the information that I decided I simply had to interview him for Nuclear Hot Seat, and he agreed. Sean, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: My pleasure. So tell me, how did SafeCast get started, and how did you start doing this work?
1: Uh, well, I have a lot of friends in Japan. I, I visit there quite frequently, and uh, after after the earthquake on three eleven. And naturally, I was just in touch with with everyone uh, there that I knew you know to find out what was going on, find out who was safe, you know if there was any problems, if there was anything I could do um, i'm I'm sort of connected to a uh a community of, of sort of hackers and builders who can you know fiddle with hardware and um, build things really quickly if if need be uh, you know so I just sort of reached out to see see what I could do um and our first our first thought uh with several of of my friends on japan on the ground in japan was well let's just get this this data together because nobody can find out what's going on so we'll just we'll just find mm-hmm. the data online and put it in a better a better format for people so that was the initial start mm-hmm. uh, but it,
0: so you just started out by searching online, assuming hashtag. that it would be there
1: yeah we we thought that we could just you know find different sources aggregate it together uh throw it into a map um you know and then it would it would be understandable to the layperson um but unfortunately, the data didn't exist.
0: So what when you discovered that the data did not exist, what was the response to that?
1: Well, it, you know, it, we weren't too shocked, honestly. I mean, we were a little surprised, but, you know, prior to 3.11, none of us were, were involved with radiation monitoring anyway uh, to begin with. So we hadn't really heard much about it. And, uh, you know, so so not knowing – so finding that it wasn't there wasn't really that surprising because we hadn't heard about it before uh, on our own anyway. So we thought that the solution to that would be very simple, uh, that we would just buy a bunch of Geiger counters and then distribute them to people, uh, thus creating this data, and then we'd be able to hand it to people, and then we'd be done.
0: So, but that also turned
1: out to be a bigger problem because the Geiger counters themselves didn't exist.
0: Wait, say that again, the Geiger counters?
1: <laughs> they didn't exist. Uh, prior to Prior to this event, there was really no market for... Geiger counters, so so people who are in the business of making Geiger counters and selling Geiger counters, you know, if they were selling, you know, five or ten a month, that was, that was big business. So all of a sudden, they started getting orders for thousands a day, and no one can keep up. Um, so the suppliers were out, manufacturers were out, everybody was out of everything. So our plan to just go buy a bunch of equipment uh, was completely impossible because the equipment just wasn't there.
0: So what did you do then?
1: Well, so then <laughs> we started reaching out to all the manufacturers uh, and seeing what we could do, and we, we ran into a bunch of very helpful people who started giving us the little bit of stock that they had. They started giving us the parts of the unbuilt sensors um, that they hadn't quite gotten put together at plants yet, so we were able to take those and build our own devices. And uh, what we did was we created a device that we call the BG. Which uh, is sort of a, a reference to a bento box because it looks it's a small little compact thing that we can attach to car to a car, and then it logs a reading and a GPS measurement every five seconds. And so we take these devices and drive um, all over the map anywhere there's not coverage uh, already, not data being published, and try to map out everything we possibly can. Since March, we've mapped um, just over about six hundred thousand points with
0: that And how far apart are the points?
1: Uh, well, depending on how far you're driving, you know, I mean, they're, they're logged every five seconds. So, if a car is moving very fast, they're they're further apart than if it's, you know. So in, in neighborhoods, it's it's more it's more specific. Uh, on a freeway, it's a little bit further out. And, uh, and then we and then we see when we find hot spots. We stop and walk around and measure things as well.
0: What do you do to protect yourself from the radiation when you're doing this work?
1: Well, we're in a car for the most part, which uh blocks, you know, the good majority of everything. Uh and then any time that we are stopping, we're only we're only out for uh, you know, maybe ten or fifteen, twenty minutes, half hour or something in, in any particular area. And we're not we're not going into evac we're not going into like the mandatory evacuation zones. We're we're going into the areas that people are still living, um you know, we we briefly passed through the voluntary evacuation zones just to just to get readings, but uh, we're not hanging out in in areas where a short periods of time would be problematic for us.
0: So how, I mean, when was this organization formed or it, it safecast, and how did you manage to get the money together? Because it's, I I can't see the manufacturers donating the, what they have already purchased to you, or or did they? Some did.
1: Some did, actually. <laughs> Some did. Uh, one of one of the people who has been incredibly helpful to us uh, and has become uh, an advisor for for SafeCast is uh, a, a man named Dan Sintz, who uh, is, he runs a company called International Medcom and uh, has been very involved with radiation monitoring for a long time. He helped design the the sensor network at Three Mile Island after the event. He's been actively involved with C10 up in. Um, Massachusetts for for years, so he he's been very very helpful to us, and uh, he he actually gave us a bunch of equipment and put us through the priority list for everything, everything that he gets in for manufacturers goes right to us immediately. Um, uh, we've gotten some grants. We did a Kickstarter fund uh, where we raised just shy of forty thousand uh, dollars from individuals and people just chipping in you know twenty bucks here or a hundred bucks there, uh, and then we've had a a number of businesses uh, and individuals in uh In Japan and outside of japan um, give us give us small small checks. So we've been able to uh, put together some funds to do all this.
0: This is terrific. so what has been the response in Japan either the official response or the on the ground dealing with people one on one response
1: There's been no official response of any kind. Um, we haven't gotten any contact from anybody in any governments or or you know, official capacities to what we're doing in any way. There's no curiosity?
0: They don't want to know what the the numbers are that you're coming up with? They're not comparing or contrasting with what they've got?
1: Well, maybe they are, but they're not doing it publicly. Mm. Um, What they have done is they've made statements uh, that the only numbers that they consider to be official are numbers that they are releasing um, and that people who have devices on their own um, and are releasing numbers uh, they don't consider those official, so that's what they've. That, that's the only public statement that they've made. Um, it's possible. It's in relation to us. They didn't name us. They didn't point to us. You know, there's certainly lots of people with devices, um, and some of that's some of that's valid because right now, uh, because there is a shortage of, of actual devices, the market is sort of being flooded with really, really poor devices that are not sensitive, that don't read things, that give bad readings. Uh, it's really unfortunate how many um, really, really low-quality devices are av- readily available all over Japan right now at very high prices, um, and then actual actual quality merchandise is impossible to get
0: sold. So going back to, to the question, that's the official response or lack thereof to you. What about right, the sure. people you met when you were on the ground in Japan?
1: Well, so, you know, we have a... We have a, a about 50 volunteers uh, in the organization right now the vast majority of which of those are in Japan either in Tokyo or, or living in Fukushima on their own um, and then we you know are constantly right running into other people uh, as we're out doing this so initially people were skeptical they wanted to know what we were doing because there had been other people around taking readings um, and then just leaving so they didn't you know they weren't getting any of the information um, but our whole, Mission and everything we're doing is, is about giving the information to the people so that they can, you know, make actual educated decisions based on, on what the real data is rather than someone else far away just telling them, you know, oh, everything's fine, don't worry about it. So once people learned who we are, um, and our name has kind of spread, pr- spread quite a bit now, they're very excited to see us, uh, and, and, you know, very happy to get the, the data that that we're giving them because most of them are having an incredibly difficult time getting any kind of data uh, specific to them from any official sources.
0: Now, do members of your group retain the equipment? Do you share it with with people who are living in the local communities? How is how are these pieces of equi- these precious pieces of equipment being parsed out?
1: Well, because because they're still very limited, um, you know. Our, our main idea of just having an endless supply of them and that we just hand it out to everybody is is not not yet in motion. <laughs> um, and so what we what we do is we have ones that are we have we have a few different cars that the devices are attached to and set up, and those those are ours uh, and sort of stay in our possession, and we we drive around with them, and then we look around for people that would be good recipients of them that would put the device to good use as well as regularly report the data back to us so that other people uh, would benefit from the readings that were coming from those as well. So we've we've partnered, sort of partnered with a number of uh, mothers' organizations. We've, we've donated a bunch of devices to um, some orphanages and some schools uh, where children are around, and uh, we have a number of sort of delivery people um, who uh, have been excited to help us by, uh, by taking these, uh, these mobile devices and putting on their on their vehicles as well. Um, you know, so, so as we get a device that we're able to sort of give out, we, we look around and find out where, where the best place for it to go at any, at any given moment was. And then, and then we recycle them. They, you know, people measure the stuff in their area. If they're not going to be doing new, new stuff with it, they, they give it back to us, and then we can measure more. Uh, ideally we'll be able to give things out on a more permanent basis but right now we, we're still limited on by the equipment availability
0: so how is the information um aggregated i mean people drive around they yep. these readings are taken every 5 seconds and a whole bunch of data is collected give us an idea what happens to it then and how does it become accessible
1: well there's a couple different there's a couple different things depending on which version of the device uh, it is, is there um, Some of them have a memory card inside the device that when people get back to their house or whatever they just pull the memory card out and uh, copy the file from it and email it to us
0: um, some of them so so in other words the information comes back to you or the organization. By the way, is it more than just you?
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. There there's there's like I said there there's almost 50 people uh you know, volunteering in some in some aspect with with the organization right now.
0: Okay. So it, but the information that they get from their from their readings has to come back to you.
1: Right. It and then what on. what do
0: you do with it and how is it made available?
1: So we have, we ha- you know, we've written scripts and, and, you know, databases to handle this at this point. So when we get, when we get the, the data back from these things, and so, again, either either somebody actively emails it to us or some of the devices are configured to send it to us automatically, you know, on, when it gets around an Internet connection. Um, so there's a, there's a few different ways the data can get to us. But once it gets back to us, we, we put it into our system uh, that maps out uh, a map based on that specific a unit and that specific you know like time period from when from when the last time came through, uh, so there's an individual map created for that specific uh, readings, and then we have a larger map that is all of our data put into it, so you can sort of see the bigger picture, not just that specific piece
0: and about how long between the time that you get the data and it actually appears on the site, uh, what's the time lapse there?
1: well, because because it's, it's volunteer-driven and, and there's a number of pieces that have to, like, sort of buttons that have to get pushed manually for that to happen. Um, on the short end, uh, it happens almost instantaneously. Within, within a half hour, within an hour of us receiving the data, it's up live on the site for anybody to use. Um, on, the, on the longer term, if, if things are sort of stacked up and we're, you know, busy building devices and, and haven't checked email or something, uh, it, maybe it takes up to 24 hours, um, but it's it's very quick.
0: Sounds like it. So, who has been using this data, and for what purposes?
1: Well, we are publishing the data um, under what's what's called a, a CC0 uh, designation, which is say that say that really again. It didn't
0: quite carry a,
1: a CC0 designation. cp 0 uh, No, no, C, CC. Oh, um, CC0. Right, which is uh, which is essentially a public domain license uh, that's published by Creative Commons. So what we're doing, what this allows is for anybody to use the data uh, for any purpose uh, without, you know, without having to, you know, pay us anything or, you know, get permission from us to do anything, um, they can just take it and, and use it and map it out on their own. So we don't know um, how many people are using it because we're publishing it in a number of different places. So we have our maps then we have files that people can download for raw data themselves. Um, and then we're also publishing that data out to some other data aggregators who are then sort of repackaging it and publishing it on their own. So it's getting out all over the place in a lot of different ways. Uh, some people have gotten back in touch with us with maps that they've made with mm-hmm. the data, showing you know showing like their own flavor of visualization on it. Uh, one example of that is Yahoo Japan is actually um, – Publishing a data now at I believe it's uh, radiation.yahoo.co.jp. I believe that's the the URL. They uh, they're using our data for for their radiation maps.
0: So, Could you repeat that uh, URL a little bit more slowly?
1: Sorry, I, I'm I'm trying to remember it off the off the top of my head. So, so here's gonna... what you do:
0: send it to me in an email. I'll make sure it gets perfect. up on what, on our site. Okay, perfect. Okay. Um,
1: and if you go to maps.safecast.org. That's kind of the the central point of where we have a lot of different visualizations, both both the ones we've created and ones that other people are are putting together.
0: Here's a thought if you haven't done it already, and that would be on one. I know you've got a, a an admin blog that you're doing on the um, uh, SafeCast site, but uh, mm. if. To have some kind of a blog or a group page on Facebook, and just request that if people use the data, all you ask in return is that if it's proven useful, would they please get back to you and let you know?
1: Well, we, we do we do have it on Facebook. We have it on Facebook, and we we have it in a number of different places. Um, but to maintain the license that we're trying to to use with it, we can't we can't ask anybody to you know have to get back to us. Um, But a a lot of people do get back to us and say that, you know, we've seen a lot of maps that people have given back to us, but um, in sort of the the free data open aspect of it, um, we really sort of just put it out into the world and, and, you know, see what happens from there.
0: I'm so struck with the generosity of heart and spirit um, that is being shown by, by citizen activists all over the place in creating the response that deserves to be coming from government and officials who are supposed to be doing this as part of their jobs. And uh, right. instead there are individuals such as yourself stepping into the fray and um, and doing the work for them.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, we w- we're we creating the stuff that we assumed would have already been there. Um you
0: know and it's disappointing that it wasn't uh but now it is <laughs> <laughs> it's like this podcast there's no I, I i discovered by accident that there's no other aggregator of of information about what's happened in the week in nuclear arenas uh anywhere out there but i didn't know that when i created this i just was doing what i felt i had to in order to keep myself sane in the wake of fukushima So let's open this up. Is there anybody on the call who would like to ask Sean Bonner of SafeCast uh, a question about his um, citizen activist group and the monitoring of radiation that they are facilitating in Japan? Oh, they're a shy group. Anybody? Tim? Kim? Ellen? Ellen? Okay, Tim. What I would like to know now is how can we support you in the continuation of this work?
1: Uh, well, the two the two best things that we can that we can do is continue to get the word out. We want to you know we want to let people know that that we have this data, that we're creating more and more of it, and and that it's available on the site and people can use it because that that is the main goal of this is to get the data out to people. So the more people that know about it, the better um and then on top of that it's really donations you know the the devices that we're that we're making we we have a breakdown on the site you can see exactly how much uh, each device uh costs you know and and each sort of system that we're using um but for for one of the the drives um like uh like the one that we did on on Sunday that I wrote about that that you saw in my blog post you know, with gas and tolls and everything, you know, by the end of the day, that that costs about five hundred dollars to do every every do, every day that we do it. And we have we have people who are who are doing that, you know, three three or four times a week sometimes. Um, so really, like any any little bit of funding that we can that we can get, you know, helps helps pay for for one of those drives or helps buy buy another Geiger counter or some more tubes that we can put into something. Um, but but those are those are really the two big things that we need right now.
0: And if we were to uh, donate to you, where would we find you? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you go to safecast.org, uh, then the donation option is, is right there and, and very clear.
0: And that's safe, S as in Sam, A, F as in Frank, E, cast, like broadcast or podcast, dot org. Uh, and uh, is there a, but- what, a PayPal button to click on, something like yeah. that?
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. Sean,
0: I want to thank you so much, um, first of all, for your heart and your spirit in stepping forward in this way to be of such phenomenal service um, to the people of Japan and to the rest of the world in getting this information out. And I specifically want to thank you for having agreed to come on Nuclear Hot Seat today and share your information with us.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. And and like I said, you know, it's it's not just me. We have have a bunch of people who are, uh, you know, doing this on a much more regular basis. I'm sort of just trying to to help point things in the right direction and and helping
0: out where I can. It's wonderful. uh, By that, I didn't mean just you specifically, but everyone who's involved in this endeavor. And uh, in the future, if you have a breakthrough, if you have an observation, if something comes forward that you think would be of interest to the listeners, please get back in touch. Let us know. I would be happy to feature it on the show. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, that was Sean Bonner, uh, one of the creators of SafeCast, a citizen activist group that has distributed free radiation monitors so that people on the ground in Japan can get accurate readings as to what their local radiation levels are. you think the government would do something like that, but oh well. So now back to some more nuclear news, shifting over to Japan. Um, today there was news that uh, TEPCO announced, Tokyo Electric Power Company announced, on Tuesday, today, that a man in his 40s who had worked to help contain the radiation crisis at the firm's crippled Fukushima number 1 nuclear power plant has died of acute leukemia. The man worked at the Fukushima plant for only seven days and only began in early August. His jobs included radiation exposure management, the officials said. Now, a medical checkup prior to his work at the plant showed no problems with his health. Tepco says the man's death had nothing to do with his work at Fukushima. I don't even know how to respond to that one. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain is what they're saying. Okay, well, while some people are still debating whether Fukushima is worse than Chernobyl, uh, indeed it is, Um some scientists say that Fukushima is up to, it is up to 72,000 times worse than Fukushima. That's uh, Professor Christopher Busby, uh, who is a professor at the University of Ulster. Uh, he said that Fukushima is still boiling its radionuclides all over Japan. Chernobyl went up in one go. I believe the total activity for Chernobyl was 10 days. So, according to Busby, Fukushima is worse. And uh we've at times done the nuclear math on this program as to the number of days times the number of we'll do this at the end of the show the um uh, number of reactors means that we've got about a year and a half worth of nuclear leakage on our hands if it were just a single plant now. Also in this report, uh, Professor Tim Mousseau, a biological scientist who has spent more than a decade researching the genetic impact of radiation around Chernobyl, has said that he's worried that many people in Fukushima are burying their heads in the sand. His Chernobyl research concluded that biodiversity and the numbers of insects and spiders has shrunk inside the irradiated zone, and the bird population showed evidence of genetic defects, including smaller brain size. He said further, there are very likely to be very significant long-term health impact from prolonged exposure. Now, Japan, I don't know if this is in response to what um, uh, SafeCast is doing, but Japan announced on August 24th that it will more than triple the number of regions it checks for airborne radiation as more contaminated hotspots are discovered far from, from TEPCO's facility in Fukushima. Uh, The government plans to increase radiation monitoring by helicopters, not on the ground, helicopters, to 22 prefectures from the six that they're currently doing, which are the ones closest to the plant. Uh, The plan comes after radioactive waste from more than double the regulatory limit was found 200 kilometers, or 125 miles, from the plant this past week. The figures are, are just horrific. The maximum Amount of radiation. This is a sense of what they're, the games that they are playing with the numbers. The maximum radiation level given for Fukushima Prefecture on August 13th was 2.64 microservits per hour in the village of Iate, which is 40 kilometers, about 20-some-odd miles northwest of uh, the plant. However, the official reading in the village itself on August 14th, just the next day, was 14.2 microservits per hour. So the government was saying on the 13th 2.64, and the people who did their own reading the next day said 14.2. So it has come out since then that the government, in reporting their numbers, they exclude the highest readings among 20 measuring stations in the village from the data it collects for publication. Now in, I used to work in demographics research for fox broadcasting in the early days and one of the things that is done in any averaging out of statistics is that the top and the bottom are thrown out in equal numbers as being maybe it's an aberration so you take one off the top and one off the bottom or two off the top and two off the bottom you don't take them just off the top if you're looking for an accurate number So the government is playing games, or as has been said in demographics research for for decades, if not generations now, there are three kinds of liars in the world. There are liars, there are damned liars, and there are statisticians. You can always play games with the numbers. So with that in mind, I went on the search for more human-based information this past week and came up with some heartbreaking Pieces of information. Now, all of this is anecdotal, and anecdotal is usually a term that's used to um, denigrate a piece of information. Oh, that just came from a person. There's no proof on it. It's anecdotal. I happen to believe the anecdotal pieces because it's coming from people who have no agenda. They're just saying, this is what's true for me. This is what I've heard from my friends. So here are just a few pieces. I, uh, got this from something called Fukushima Diary. Uh, you can Google that and find it. Uh, apparently women all over Japan are tweeting to each other and blogging and engaging the conversation, quote, I wonder if I should give up having a baby. They're not saying it hysterically according to this blog. Sometimes it's being said by doctors, scientists, or journalists. And they're wondering if they are pregnant, if they should abort, if they are not yet pregnant, if they should prevent themselves from having any babies in the future. I know that in the wake of having been at Three Mile Island... I debated what I was going to do, and rather than take the irreversible step of sterilization, I just decided to be vigilant, and indeed, I never gave birth. I never allowed myself to do so. So that debate is currently raging in Japan. Uh A tweet from someone in uh, Ayati, and that was, A kitten's born, no hands. Here's one from an office worker uh, in uh, Misato, Saitama. Pardon me for the Japanese pronunciations. I'm doing the best I can. And here was what the email said. There are 40 employees in our office, five of them having been suffering from severe coughing for three months. Two had pneumonia. One had a terrible fever. I had 39 degrees Celsius fever. Called in sick for a week, too. After the fever, I had rash from my knees to my heels. This from someone who is involved with uh the numeric side of things. Don't trust Japanese radiation check. In case of rice, they check cesium-134, but they don't check cesium-137, and the, ra- the levels of radiation for cesium-137 are much higher. For example, cesium-134... 21 becquerels per kilogram, cesium-137, 9,000 becquerels through kilogram. What the government announces is 21. They always go with the lowest number. Or they will say it's not detectable when it's measurable, but it's under 20. So this is what people on the ground are saying and are doing. And here's just one additional, here here, here are two additional pieces with some uh, statistics in the interest. Someone did a search on earthquakes that were higher on the Richter scale than 5.0 that occurred between 1970 and 2000. Very interesting results. England had no earthquakes in that time that were 5.0 or higher. France had two. Germany had two, which were probably the same ones that France had. In the U.S., we had 322 earthquakes, magnitude 5.0 or higher. Japan, in that same period of time, had 3,954 earthquakes, the most seismically active area on the face of the planet. What a wonderful place to put in nuclear reactors. And here's somebody else who's doing the uh, nuclear math. So far, 168 times as much radiation as the Hiroshima bomb has been emitted from Fukushima. In Hiroshima, 40,000 people died of cancer. Multiply the 40,000 from Hiroshima times 168 times the radiation in H- Fukushima, and you get 6,720,000 people may die of cancer. Now, it's been estimated that eight 1,000 times as much radiation as the Hiroshima bomb will be emitted in total from Fukushima Daiichi. 40,000 people who died of cancer in Hiroshima times 8,000 is 320 million people may die of cancer in total from this event. Currently, the Japanese population is 120 million people. So let's get a little bit better news going. Um, I always include some holistic information that we can use to preserve, build our health, um, protect ourselves from radiation. And I found some very interesting statistics online uh, about the use of spirulina, which is a super green sea algae that's used as a food supplement in holistic environments that a British company, Earthrise UK, sent spirulina tablets and powder to clinics in Belarus for the treatment of children suffering from radiation sickness after Chernobyl. Earthrise sent their, material, their shipments to Children of Chernobyl Committee in Minsk, and Soviet physicians used the supplements in clinics in Minsk and Grodno, Belarus, as well as Kiev, Ukraine. By taking 5 grams of spirulina a day for 45 days, the Institute of Radiation Medicine in Minsk found that children showed enhanced immune systems and T-cell counts and reduced radioactivity. The Institute also reported regeneration of bone marrow, spinal fluids, blood, and the liver. Dangerously low white blood cell counts of about 1,000, which are typical of leukemia, rose to an average of 3,000 in 20 days just by taking spirulina, the super blue green algae. Spirulina produced rapid improvements in the health of the treated children compared to others who did not receive the algae. In particular, Spirulina reduced urine radioactivity levels by 50% in only 20 days. So the Institute developed a special program to treat 100 children every 20 days with Spirulina and just run them through the program. Amazingly, Health restoration was reported even when radiation sickness was so advanced that the children's eyeballs were bulging out of their sockets. Furthermore, the healing occurred during continuous presence of radiation as well as the presence of radiation-contaminated food and water sources. So, summing this up, spirulina accelerates. It seems to accelerate by these reports. Not medical advice, just passing along information. But spirulina Accelerates the evacuation of radionuclides from the human body. Now I got this information from a free ebook that is available if you put in the url radiationdetox.com, it will redirect to another website URL, but that will be the access. The book is absolutely free, and uh, looking at it, it has some extraordinarily good information about detoxing from uh, radiation. So uh, again radiationdetox.com so it's time for a little bit of activism. So that we can have a sense of fighting back. The best way I have found to get out of depression and despair about what's going on in the nuclear-based world is to just take action. So here's a report from our friends in the Midwest. Hello,
2: my name is Michael Keegan. I'm with the Coalition for a Nuclear-Free Great Lakes. Uh, I represent a coalition concerned about 20 percent of the world's surface fresh water being ringed by 60 nuclear power plants. There are 37 nuclear plants directly in the watershed and another 23 just outside, which means that the windshed and the watershed of the Great Lakes Basin is at risk of an accident from a nuclear power plant, potentially losing 20% of the world's surface fresh water. And we are gearing up for a presentation to the International Joint Commission, which will, will be holding proceedings in the Detroit, Michigan area, October 12th through the 13th and 14th. Google, don't waste Michigan. Uh, we have a web page, and from there they could get my email address and uh, contact me via email, and we'll get them plugged in.
0: So that's for people in the Midwest, and there are a lot of activist opportunities around the country. Uh, this from our friends at NIRS, N I R S, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, uh, NIRS.org. org. The Blue Ribbon Commission is coming to town. The Blue Ribbon Commission is coming to town. Tell them what America really thinks about a nuclear future. So the Blue Ribbon Commission on America's Nuclear Future is a group that is set up to canvas the, around the United States for uh, in a town hall kind of a format so that people can speak out. And it may be coming someplace close to you. On September 13th, it will be in Denver, Colorado. October 12th in Boston, and interestingly, it's meeting at the Harvard Medical School Conference Center. That would be a good one to be on the fly on the wall or be a participant. In addition, on October 18th, it's going to be in Atlanta, Georgia. October 20th in Washington, D.C., and October 28th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Now, I suggest that you go to the NERS site, n, like Nancy, I-R-S, like Sam, .org, and check out their talking points on the BRC, the Blue Ribbon Commission, the BRC's report. Um, they have a lot of information there that any one of us can print out and take to one of these meetings. And uh, they are going to be joined at these meetings um, by groups that are organizing locally to participate, including regional groups of the Physicians for Social Responsibility, many chapters of that, and also some Sierra Club groups are mobilizing. If you wish to, uh you can uh, contact um, Positions for, for um, Social Responsibility Activist Morgan Pinnell at 202-587-5232. Cut to the chase. Go to nirs.org and look for this information. They have a lot of strategies, a lot of information as to how you can become involved and have your voice heard as to what you want to see happen with America's nuclear future, which is, could we go back in time and just not take this path? Not possible, but to have your voice be heard. And closer to home, here in Southern California, there's a real opportunity for activism on several fronts. The Residents Organized for Safe Environment, which is spearheading uh, work to uh, get the license at the San Onofre Nuclear Generating Station, not renewed, um, finally succeeded in having hearings called locally, or a hearing called, between the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Southern California Edison, and um, anti-nuclear activists uh, with plans to bring in Arnie Gunderson, Dan Hirsch, Really heavy hitters on our side. Here's the rub. As soon as the NRC heard that Arnie and Dan and these other really nationally prominent people were coming to town, for whatever reason, oh, boy, can we not figure this out, the city manager decided to divide the meeting into two different days and hold them a week apart. The first meeting would be with the NRC and California Edison, And the second day would be for the nuclear activists. In other words, the pro would be heard on one day, the anti would be heard on the other day. This is unacceptable because the entire idea behind this hearing was to get a real discussion going on both sides of the issues, having everything presented and a chance for the public to ask their questions with both sides hearing what the people are saying and hearing what each other is saying so that there can be some real discussion. So here's the deal. If you're in California or if you just have a really good long-distance phone system uh where you wouldn't mind making the call, we are asking you to make calls to the city manager of San Clemente. His name is George Scarborough. And the phone number, I'll post this on the website. His phone number is 949-361-8322. You can also email George at citymanager at Sam-Clemente.org. Now, calls from Nuclear Hot Seat to uh, George Scarborough's office have not been returned. Uh, I will continue to see if there's any way I can have a conversation with him. So this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 30th, 2011, day 172 for each of the three melted-down nuclear reactors at Fukushima, meaning that there have been 516, 516 nuclear leak days since fukushima began you can find us and links to all the previous programs by going to nuclearhotseat.com and for daily updates i post on the facebook nuclear hot seat group page it also has space there for you to comment on other people's posts and to post your own information as well here's the good news for the podcast we are up and running on itunes and you can subscribe so you never need miss a single update And, again, I'm still learning about RSS feed buttons, but that, too, shall come in time. This is Libby Halebi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you and everyone who listens to Nuclear Hot Seat that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now stay awake. Do not go back to sleep. I hope to talk to you again next week. Take care. Be safe. Bye-bye.